From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Republican candidates the Democrats didn't want to run against won last night. Joe O'Day for Senate. That's why we're here. It's all about Colorado and working Americans. And Heidi Ganahl for governor. Nothing else matters if our kids are not okay. And our kids are not okay right now in Colorado, thanks to Jared Polis and Democrats. Coming up, results, analysis, voter voices. Most important is getting our economy under control. You know, it's ridiculous what we're paying for gas. And the head of the county clerks, as Tina Peters is defeated. She is what I've been calling a low-information clerk, so she has never taken the time to learn her job, to learn her system. That's why I think these bad actors targeted her, I suspect, and she fell prey to it. CPR's fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fund in-depth news and music discovery now and in the months to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The ballot for the general election is pretty much set. In primaries last night, Republican and unaffiliated voters chose the GOP candidates they'd like to see advance. And they are relative moderates. In the U.S. Senate race, construction company CEO Joe O'Day will challenge incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. And CU Regent and entrepreneur Heidi Ganahl will face Governor Jared Polis. Neither of those two Democrats had challengers from within their own party. So let's hear the Republican winners, starting with an excerpt of O'Day's victory speech in Denver. When they counted the votes, independents showed up. They voted for me in this primary, and we're going to work hard to keep them in our coalition this fall. Our coalition is what made this victory possible. It's Trump Republicans, GOP Republicans, log cabin Republicans, pro-life, pro-choice Republicans, independents, parents, the police, seniors, veterans, unions, farmers, rural, urban, and suburban voters, and yes, even disenfranchised Democrats that have come onto our team. Our campaign is a big tent, and there's room for plenty more. It's a coalition of people who don't agree on every issue, every time. But we are united in a deep and abiding love of our country and a profound belief that America is so much better than what we have become. These are the voices I will fight for in the U.S. Senate. Trust me, I'll be a different kind of senator, and that's probably an understatement. The first time I went back to Washington, I had a well-known official tell me, I probably shouldn't wear blue jeans and cowboy boots when I'm meeting with U.S. Senators. I said, well, we're going to see about that. I am who I am. But know this, none of this will change me. I'm an outsider, not a politician. I'm a contractor, not a slick talker, as you guys have come to know. I will listen to people. I'm a man who loves this country, and I don't have a lot of patience for those who live to tear America down. That's not me. I'll represent Colorado because my heart and soul is here in Colorado. I'm a person who isn't afraid to walk into a room of people who disagree with me. 
and say, we don't agree on everything, but let's find a way to work together. I did that many, many times during this primary. And I'll do it again on the Senate floor as well. I'll work with reasonable people on both sides of the aisle and stand up to the extremes. I won't vote the party line. Don't know how to do it. That is the winning Republican candidate for U.S. Senate, Joe O'Day. He'll face incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. And now some of Heidi Ganahl's victory speech, again in the governor's race. I'll confess our mic was a little farther from her than we'd wish as she addressed her supporters at a Sedalia saloon. I want you to be happy warriors. I want you to go out and spread the message that we have big, bold ideas to solve the problems we are facing right now. And Colorado is ready for new leadership. We are ready for change. The people of Colorado, I've been talking to them for six years. I know their hearts. They want different leadership. They want a governor who will trust them to make good decisions for their lives their businesses, their families, their kids, their health. And the only thing I will ever mandate as your governor is freedom. So in typical Heidi fashion, I didn't follow the script. (laughs) It's okay. You all know my heart. And you all know our way forward. Our way forward is being happy warriors and spreading the good message that we have a different path forward for our beautiful state. And I will trust all of you and I will follow the Constitution as your governor. And I will win back Colorado for all of us. We'll do this together. Are you ready? Heidi Ganahl there in Sedalia, Colorado, saying in part the only thing she'll mandate is freedom. To break down the results and to look ahead to November, we are joined by political columnist and former longtime public policy consultant Eric Sonderman. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Always fun. In a column you wrote last month, you said if Republicans nominate grown-ups for the general election, it could garner November wins depending on the national wins. Uh, Now that the ballot is set, what what do you make of this? I make that the party, by and large, nominated the grown-ups. I make that we're in for an interesting November. If it had gone the other way yesterday, the election, for all intents and purposes, would have been over by now. Michael Bennett would have been able to go on a nice long cruise. (laughs) No cruise in, in Michael Bennett's future. He has a race on his hands. Uh, Ditto for Democrats in the 7th Congressional District, Brittany Pedersen in the 8th Congressional District, up and down the ballot. Certainly those down-ballot offices, Attorney General, State Treasurer, most of all Secretary of State, they're all very much in play now based on who the Republicans chose as their ticket. Okay, there's one omission there, and that was really the top of the ticket at the governor's race. What do you make of that? I make that Jared Polis will be the hardest Democrat to dislodge. As I put in some recent column, each of these races has a tipping point depending on how big of a tailwind Republicans have at their back in November. To defeat Jared Polis, to dislodge him from office is going to take not just a tailwind, but more like a Category 5 hurricane. Could we have a hurricane in store this November in terms of 
the wind at the Republicans' back? Yes, it's possible, but I would not bet on that. He will be the last Democrat to go down. Do you think that would be a hurricane driven by the cost of living? What do you imagine the issues to be into the general? I think it's everything. I don't know that the issues are terribly unique to Colorado. I think most issues these days are nationalized, federalized, but Mm. it's certainly inflation and the cost of living. It's certainly crime. It's fentanyl. It is homelessness. It's just a sense of a country and a state not always moving in the right direction, despite all of Colorado's assets. Uh, There is generally a downcast demeanor out there. Downcast demeanors don't work well for incumbents. What does uh, last night tell you about the Republican Party in Colorado? It tells me that there is a massive disconnect, no surprise, between the hardcore base that shows up for caucuses that was present at the state assembly in Colorado Springs back in early April that I attended as a, as a journalist. Uh, between that base that is so animated, so Trumpified, so denying the last election and all the rest, and the mainstream of Republican voters who are still quite conservative, don't get me wrong, but in this case, pick the grown-ups as we just discussed, pick the ones who are viable candidates for November, and quite frankly, pick the ones who, if elected, are credible office holders uh, in the vein of other Republicans over the years, dating back to Bill Owens and others. Uh, Bill Owens, the last Republican governor in Colorado, 2007. How did election deniers fare in these primaries? Election deniers went down and went down by hefty margins. Ron Hanks uh, being the most prominent one, along with Tina Peters. Tina Peters didn't even come in second in that primary race that she had against Pam Anderson and Mike O'Donnell. She came in a week third. Now, I assume you can expect to hear today that the whole thing was fraudulent, it was fixed, and that she actually won going away, tongues firmly in cheek as I say that. Um, But no, they underperformed and underperformed notably, notably, and Peters ran third out of three. Okay, I've asked you about the the temperature of the Republican Party, but of course these were semi-open primaries, and that means that unaffiliateds took part. When Colorado semi-opened its primaries, the idea was that that would depolarize primary elections. Do you think we saw that? Were unaffiliateds a tempering force? That's a great question, Ryan, and I think it is a right-on question. The numbers I saw as of late yesterday were that there were just over 330,000 unaffiliateds who had sent in ballots. Now, roughly 40, 42% of those voted a Democratic ballot. That leaves 58% plus or minus a fraction that voted a Republican ballot. That is a substantial number. There were roughly 570,000 Republican votes cast. By my math, the better part of a third of those may have come from unaffiliated voters. We'll never be able to pull those ballots apart and see who the true Republicans voted for Mm -hmm. versus those unaffiliated, such as myself, who picked a Republican ballot. But my supposition is, yes, exactly per your question and exactly per the intent of that initiative uh, back a few years ago to open these primaries more seamlessly to unaffiliated voters, that yes, it had a moderating 
the tempering effect and bully for that. That's exactly what our state and our society needs. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And in this first part of the program, we are taking stock of results from last night's primary election and looking ahead to the November general election. My guest is Eric Sonderman, the longtime former public policy consultant, now political columnist. You mentioned uh, Donald Trump earlier. He made only one endorsement in the primary in Colorado. It was for Lauren Boebert, uh, who won her race. Uh, What do you think it says that he only endorsed in her race, not others? That was one of the things I was fascinated by in the weeks leading up to the race. Trump was omnipresent in primaries all across the country. Congressional races up and down the ballot, Trump was there with his endorsements. He did not play in Colorado with the exception of Boebert. He did not endorse Ron Hanks. He did not endorse Tina Peters. He did not endorse Greg Lopez in the governor's race, etc. Ron Hanks, by the way, said he would have welcomed a Trump endorsement. I'm sure he would have. I think that is an indication of two things, real quickly. One, that Trump understood, or at least the people around Trump, that he's never played all that well in Colorado. Colorado's never been a state that particularly took to him. Secondly, Trump is immensely conscious of his winning record with his endorsements. And he is increasingly only issuing endorsements after it looks pretty clear that that person is going to win with or without his endorsement. And in this case, he did not want to pick people that he was worried were losers, and as it turned out last night, were indeed losers. Lauren Boebert's win against Don Corum in the 3rd Congressional District Republican primary. Any surprise there to you? No surprise. Maybe the margin a little bit. I thought Corum might get to 40 or the low 40 percentage points. He didn't. It was more in the mid-30 percentage points, but no surprise as to the outcome. That was the one win last night for the hard right Trump base of the party. But you have to consider Lauren Boebert is an incumbent. She's the poster child for that wing of the party. And there is very little concern that she'll be able to hold that seat in November Whereas in other races, if they had nominated a Lori Sane or somebody like that, that candidacy would be dead on arrival in November. During the primary, the left spent a considerable sum trying to get right-wing candidates elected in hopes of making it easier for Democratic candidates to win the general. So they, they as you say, could go on a cruise. <laughs> uh, Eric, you tweeted Tuesday night, the whirling sound you hear is a whole bunch of dem money that looks like it got flushed on cynical efforts to boost extreme and unelectable GOP candidates Hanks, Lopez, and Sane. Let's hope the loss of that money hurts a lot. Why, why do you want it to hurt? I think it was cynical in its intentions. It was certainly not unprecedented. It worked in other states. In Illinois, for instance, the Democratic governor, who is a billionaire, uh, Pritzker family money, uh, spent a whole bunch of money to pick to handpick his opponent who would be easy to defeat. That was su- successful. I'm pleased to say that those efforts were unsuccessful in Colorado. They only contribute to the cynicism of politics. And it is hard to take Democrats terribly seriously when they rail on and on about what be, about the insurrection, the attempted coup, everything we heard in the congressional testimony yesterday, and then they turn around and give money 
to boost candidates who espouse that theory under the political practice of they will then be easier to defeat. But if you really believe that the future of this country is at stake, then quit messing around and playing hanky-panky with those candidates and funneling money into their coffers. You say it's not unprecedented, though. We had a Democratic strategist on last night during our special coverage who said, uh, it's a tool in the toolbox. Democrats didn't invent it, you know? Fair enough. Democrats didn't invent it. They were, I assume they have at least half responsibility for paternity, but they, <laughs> and, uh, but they, but they, but they didn't invent it in isolation. It has been used by both parties. It has been used in multiple states. That doesn't make it right, Ryan, and it doesn't make it healthy for our democracy. We heard stunning testimony from a former White House aide that President Trump knew on January 6th, 2021, that his supporters were armed and dangerous and that he hoped to egg them on, even shrugging off threats of assassinating the vice president. Uh, We know that a former CU visiting professor, John Eastman, was an architect of the attempted coup. And Heidi Ganahl in the governor's race is a CU regent. Uh, When I asked her several times if she disagreed with Eastman's role, she said only that he shouldn't have done it while on CU's clock. She did call January 6th, quote, a really bad day for our country. Do you expect this question to dog Heidi Ganahl in the general? It will dog Heidi Ganahl until she deals with it and deals with it in a few simple declarative sentences that she has been unwilling to issue so far in this campaign. Now, as the nominee of her party, as of last night, Heidi Ganahl has one opportunity over the coming weeks to make a first impression on a whole lot of voters who haven't yet been really tuned into this race and tuned into who their next governor potentially could be. She has an opportunity here to set things right, but for some reason she is either unable or unwilling to speak in those simple declarative sentences. She no longer has to worry in the way that she's had to worry over the last several months about that Trump base of her party. She is now the nominee of her party. If she is going to have any chance, she has the toughest race of all of them, as we've discussed, in trying to dislodge Jared Polis. If she's going to have any any chance at that, she has to be able to rise to the occasion more than we have seen so far. This is a state that has never warmed to Donald Trump, as we talked about, at where the opinions about January 6th are not ambiguous and not in doubt. And as long as Heidi Ganahl indicates doubt about them, her candidacy has little chance. Speaking of issues emanating from Washington, I am curious what you think the role will be of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, so the Dobbs decision. As we spoke with voters across the state yesterday, uh, many of them organically brought up the abortion ruling, and that was true for uh, both sides of the debate. Uh, Do you think that that is a driving issue at this point? It's the great unknown at this point as to what that effect is. It certainly advantages Democrats right now in allowing them to change the conversation. We're talking about 
reproductive rights and Roe v. Wade as opposed to talking about inflation and crime and opioids and a whole bunch of other issues that Democrats would prefer not to talk about. I think it does move numbers. It moves more numbers in some districts than in others. I think in the 7th Congressional District, the old Perlmutter District, now Eric Odlin, the Republican who won the nomination last night, versus Brittany Pedersen. I think that moves voters in Pedersen's direction, simply based on the suburban, heavily female nature of, 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 that, of that population. Uh, as to how much it neuters this big Republican wind that is expected out there in November, it probably takes a few points off of it, but it doesn't change the underlying dynamic. Before we go, did we learn anything about Democrats last night? Good question. There weren't many Democratic races, as you know. The two probably races of most profile were both here in Denver. One was a race for the nomination to the CU Board of Regents between more of a mainstream Democrat, Donnie, excuse me, Johnny Nugent, and more of a woke, progressive Democrat in Wanda James. As I looked this morning, that race was down to 131 vote difference in favor of Nugent. New, new uh, and then you have this much-discussed legislative race, House District 6, between Katie March and Elizabeth Epps. That one hasn't been called yet. March is up by 34 votes as we speak. That's recount territory, although recounts tend not to change the results by, by those kinds of numbers. But basically, that was a coin flip kind of race. So the the Democrats remain very divided between that mainstream wing and that very progressive wing. Those two races last night may have gone ever so narrowly to the mainstream wing, but this is a battle that will get played on and on, including in the mayor's race coming up next year. Eric Sonderman, political columnist for Colorado Politics. And we'll be back in a moment with the head of the County Clerks Association. He'll help us take stock of what's been a very difficult stretch for elections officials. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Pam Anderson won the Republican nomination for Secretary of State, beating out two other candidates, including Tina Peters, the indicted Mesa County clerk and recorder. Here's Anderson. All of the hard work came together. I had a great team. And what I think is Colorado voters said, hey, we need a confident professional to be in the Secretary of State's office. And that message has gotten out with the Republican nomination, and I think will continue to resonate over the summer. And when we're making the case to general election voters that, you know, we need to commit to this office and and make sure it stays and remains above the fray for those values that we all share as Americans, we want free, accessible and fair elections and push back on political hyperpartisan rhetoric around elections administration. Anderson used to run elections in politically diverse Jefferson County. Beyond thanking the people who voted for her, she also acknowledged the county clerks who administered last night's primary. I want to thank the local election officials 
and everyone who works in their counties to serve the voters and their constitutional rights. It's been a tough few years and they've been on the front lines and we have citizen elections here in Colorado conducted with trust and fairness and independent verifiability and transparency. And I will fight for local election officials, support them through training and education um, when I become Secretary of State. And I want them to know how much I appreciate the work they do. Republican Pam Anderson will face Democratic incumbent Jenna Griswold in the general election. As for Peters, she has not conceded the Associated Press reports that she accuses election officials of cheating and claimed without evidence that the outcome of the election had been manipulated. She added, quote, it's not over. Election deniers didn't fare too well in the Republican primary, whether it was Tina Peters or Ron Hanks. The big lie has made the lives of elections officials more difficult. They even fear for their safety in some cases. Let's check in with the head of Colorado's County Clerks Association, Matt Crane. And Matt, I'm pleased to meet you. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Nice to meet you as well. First off, uh, did the primary election generally go smoothly? Any hiccups? Um, It went very smoothly across the state. Clerks uh, and their teams did a great job. Our citizen election judges, the people who actually run these elections and conduct them, did a fantastic job. Our citizen election judges, help us understand the role they play. So that's such a great question. I think there's this great misconception about elections and how they're run here in Colorado. Like it's an elected clerk, like they're the great and all-powerful Oz behind a curtain, you know, fixing things and, you know, doing that kind of thing. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it's our friends and our neighbors, our church members, our Elks Lodge members, our PTA members. It's our citizens that come together and serve as election judges. So they're checking in people at voting service and polling centers. They're the people that are actually tabulating the ballots at our central account facilities, doing signature verification. There are ballot security teams going out to our ballot drop boxes to pick up those ballots and bring them back. So it's, it's, it's not the clerk who's actually conducting the election. It's, it's your friends and your neighbors who are doing this work. Are those judges trained, and do you need more of them? Uh, we always need more judges, um, and they, there is extensive training. And the training, you know, I started in elections here in Colorado in 2000, and it has gotten so much better and so much more sophisticated um, over that period of time so that people are prepared to, one, handle the technology, and two, that make sure voting can be um, happen very efficiently and try to get people in and out of the vote centers very quickly. But, you know, do I want to see someone that I might see at my synagogue's Oneg? after Shabbat services, do I want to see them collecting ballots uh, from, you know, the, the Dropbox, for instance. Uh, talk to me about why you place great confidence in that sort of citizen approach. I think it I think it does provide greater confidence to citizens if they look and say, oh, my gosh, there's my synagogue. You know, I know him from the synagogue or her from the synagogue. She's the one picking up ballots. Wow, that gives me some comfort. Um, and it's important that people know that it is your friends and your neighbors, your synagogue members, your church members, you know, from uh, it's people, you know, from all walks of life that are doing this work. Uh, as uh, I th- believe you're a Republican. And, yes, sir. Yeah. I-, I wonder how you feel about the defeat of Tina Peters, who, who, by the way, was barred from overseeing elections in her own county. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> I am. Am I putting uh, you in a weird position? You no, know, you're not putting me in a weird <laughs> position, actually. I've um, I've you know been speaking out more and more about this. I mean, there's certain things you can rely on in life, right? Death, taxes and Tina Peters lying about elections. 
um, and what she has done to um, undermine voter confidence um, based on a lie. Um, you know, she's you know potentially broken the law. She's violated her oath of office, and all she's done is weaken election integrity, not strengthen it. Um, so, as a, as a Republican who's who's seen the impacts of these lies. Going back to November 2020, where we see that, you know, President Trump's own legal team knew that the stuff about the voting systems was ridiculous. They continued with it. As a Republican, you know, we lost control of the U.S. Senate in large part because of this when we uh, Republicans lost the Georgia Senate runoff elections because the president and Linwood and others were running around tell actually telling people, Republicans, don't vote. That'll show the algorithm that cost President Trump the election and voter turnout was suppressed. Um, so does this get me mad? Yeah, you're darn right it does. Um, and for Tina to do what she did, um, she never took the time to learn her systems or to learn the election processes, which made her susceptible to these bad actors. Um, and then she became a willing participant um, in undermining uh, election integrity and voter confidence. And I think it's disgraceful. Do you have conversations with people who have internalized and hold now as an article of faith the big lie? I do. And, and how, do you, how do you disabuse them of this notion? So it's just conversations and one-on-one -on -one conversations. Sometimes it's in, you know, in meetings. You know, I've gone into meetings to uh, somewhat hostile crowds. Um, but you have to stand up and tell the truth, and you can't let them intimidate you or back you down, even if you have people yelling at you or booing you or those kinds of things. Um, Has that happened to you? You've been yelled at and booed? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Um, and it's, you know, it's fine because the juice is worth the squeeze, right? The truth matters. So we're going to do what we can, not just me, but, you know, other, you know, local election officials across the state. We're going to do what we can to be open and transparent and talk about what's real um, and what really happens in our elections. It's important that people hear that. I wonder if that is also an opportunity to invite them to witness it or to be a part of it. Yes, absolutely. So every chance we get to your question earlier, do we need more election judges? The answer is always yes. But what we do um, as election officials is say, hey, look. If you have questions, come talk to us. Um, and by the way, when we say that there's no cracking in our voting systems um, or that Tina Peters is a liar about what she's talking about, it doesn't mean that as election administrators, we don't see room for improvement in both access and integrity. Hmm. Um, so we will keep moving. Perfection is unattainable, but we keep striving for it. Well, give me an example of that in Colorado. What would you like to see? I don't know, investments or new sure. technology? So that's, uh, there's so much I'd like to see. As an association, we, re uh, we released a letter last year talking about the four things that we would like to um, improve upon first. One was a stronger signature verification audit. Right now here in Colorado, there's a very loose requirement about periodically uh, auditing signature verification done by judges. So we've actually formed a committee with election officials here in Colorado, political party uh, representatives and election uh, um, experts from across the country to come together to say, OK, we need to create a more robust audit that will help provide voter confidence um, that signature verification is happening properly. And if it reveals any gaps, we want to know that, too, so that we can go and close those gaps. And that could be about making sure people who are properly voting uh, that their vote counts. 100 percent. Uh-huh. Absolutely. That's right. 
Um, so, you know, we want to attack signature verification audits. We want to do uh, voter registration audits, build upon what's already done. We want to take our ballot images and our cast vote records. The cast vote records are the um, records from the voting system mm-hmm. that tell you how the system interpreted your ballot. So right now, those are available under our Colorado Open Records Act, but it can be very costly to provide those because there has to be redaction so that we can protect ballot anonymity, right? Nobody has a right to know how you voted. Mm. So we, you know, we're seeking ways, um, funding, we're talking to nonprofit groups, um, you know, that are out there that have access to people who can create these technologies, uh, hopefully for free, that can do redaction so that we can put all of this information out online after each election for free. So that if you decide on a Friday night, you know what, I want to go on and do a hand recount of my own precinct in, in Denver or wherever you live, you can do that. We aren't afraid of sunshine as election officials. We welcome it. We're trying to figure out ways to make our processes um, and, and our material, our data uh, more available to the public. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest in this part of the program is Matt Crane, executive director of the Colorado County Clerks Association. Well, this makes me wonder then, Matt, if I want to be sure my vote was counted properly, I mean, I I, I know I get that email that says your ballot was processed, Mm -hmm. but if I want to make sure, like, I voted for, you know, John Smith, did that get counted? Is there any way to do that? So there's no way to do that because, so let's say if you vote your mail ballot, you send it in, you sign it. Once it goes through signature verification to validate your eligibility and that it's your signature, um, the envelope is separated from the ballot. So at that particular time, there is no way to trace your ballot back to you. Now, what we've done, you know, Colorado has led the nation um, in developing post-election tabulation audits to demonstrate that our systems are tabulating ballots correctly. In Colorado, we do what's called the RLA, the Risk Limiting Audit, which is now considered the national best practice for post-election tabulation audits. And so, uh, you know, those audits, they provide a statistical certainty that the the, um, equipment worked correctly and that, that the outcomes are correct. And so, you know, it's those types of things that we do to try to build voter confidence to say, you know what, yes, your ballot was counted correctly. Interesting. So those audits aren't matching names uh, to votes, but they're saying the machine counted this as a vote for John Smith. Yes. And did it do so properly? Yes. Did it read that, uh, you know, filled in bubble properly? That's exactly right. We go back to the we go back to the original paper ballot marked by the voter and we compare it to the cast vote record. Got it. We heard from several candidates, both of whom lost, by the way, Ron Hanks and Greg Lopez who said, the voter rolls are a mess. That became something of a touchstone for Mm -hmm. some candidates. The voter rolls are a mess. Is that true? What, what does that mean? They, they didn't provide much in the way of specificity, by the way. Well, of course, they never do, right? It's a way for them to um, to scare voters uh, into voting for them. Um, and it it's really frustrating when people make up these problems um, or greatly exaggerate problems and scare people for votes. Um, and I wish that they would stop messing with our election process like that. Right. And maybe it's helpful to say here, it's not their... There aren't errant issues, but we're talking about whether something is a pattern or pervasive. Again, 100 percent accuracy, I think, is is not possible. But I think what we do in Colorado um, is pretty darn good and ahead of where most of the rest of the country is. Ironically, uh, for my friends on the right, the Heritage Foundation came out with an election integrity scorecard back in January. 
and they graded Colorado extremely high on the things that we do to maintain our voter rolls. Do dead people vote here? No, no, no. Dead people don't vote. I've never. Um, the, it's this is so this is so funny, but infuriating. There was um, a, one of these groups that's been going around, you know, saying they're for election integrity. Um, last year turned in a list of 759 names to the El Paso County DA mm-hmm. uh, saying that these people are dead um, and ballots were cast in their name. They got exactly one right out of 759. The clerk, Chuck Berman in El Paso County and his great team down there, they caught that during signature verification. The ballot was rejected and it had already been sent over to the district attorney's office. So what we're finding with these people that go out and look at and they you know, do these self-examinations of the voter rolls, they don't understand the data and they don't have all the data the clerk has. For instance, you know, one of these, one of the really nutty election deniers just went out recently and said Pam Anderson, uh, who just won yesterday, yeah, the Republican. Um, yeah, was registered to vote in two counties and how this was a terrible look. She never bothered to validate that the date of birth was different and it's not uncommon to have two people with the same name. So, you know, the quality, just like just like in Mesa County, the quality of the work that these election deniers do is really poor, but that doesn't stop them from going out and trying to brainwash people that there are these huge issues with our election system. You know, we heard from at least one Republican voter yesterday who, who doesn't trust vote by mail because mm-hmm. of all of the misinformation that is circulated, didn't even trust a Dropbox. She turned her ballot in in person. I thought about the fuel that she might have consumed to do that and what the cost of that is. And it strikes me that is the cost of this, is the, is the lack of faith mm-hmm. and, and perhaps unnecessarily. Right. Uh, well, I, I would say to date, um, it certainly is unnecessary. You know, we run good elections here in Colorado. There is no, um, there has been no evidence um, of any systemic fraud. And we look for that. Matt, you doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing well. Okay. Have you faced threats? Uh, I have over the last year, yes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Do you feel that's about to ease? No, um, I don't. Um, I think that, um, I, well, first of all, let me say, I mean, it, it was last year, especially after the initial Mesa County things happened. Um, but do I think that these people, uh, that the hardcore believers are going away and the, and the people who say stupid things are going away? Unfortunately, I don't. Thank you for your time. You bet. Thank you. Matt Crane, Executive Director of the Colorado County Clerks Association. All right. When we come back, voters do the talking. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside, like, peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to, like, dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quién Are We everywhere you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's hear from voters now about what issues motivated them to vote in the primary and what will carry over to the general election. CPR's Rachel Estabrook has been talking with voters all month, uh, quite a few of them yesterday as well. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. What signals did we get from voters in the primary about what they're paying attention to and, uh, you know, what might affect their votes in the general election? The economy and inflation continue to be big for voters, particularly conservative ones. Randy Hawks lives in Olathe on the western slope and is registered Republican. 
most important is getting our economy under control. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous what we're paying the amount for gas. I mean, I know what's happening everywhere else, but we've got the resources in, you know, in the United States. And it's just ridiculous that we can't get that under control. You know, and it's just making everything so much higher, the food prices and everything. I mean, I also farm, and it costs me an arm and a leg now to, to do the farming stuff. And, you know, are you going to have that, the people there to buy the product? You never know. Obviously, Democrats from Biden on down are scrambling to try to get people some relief while they hope the Federal Reserve can bring down inflation. So they're starting to recognize the urgency of this issue, but more slowly than I think a lot of voters wanted. I've heard this so much from retirees in particular who vote in higher numbers, by the way. Here's Tony Gladhill and Parker in South Metro Denver. He was voting yesterday with his wife. We're semi-retired. But, you know, we still have to work to make ends meet. And uh, this is how society is today, that uh, we should be retired and not have to work. But we do. Retirees so often on fixed incomes. What else, Rachel? Well, the abortion decision from the Supreme Court has captured a lot of voter attention across the political spectrum. And this happened quickly. It wasn't on top of mind for a lot of people two or three weeks ago, and then boom. Some Republicans I talked to said their priority is tighter restrictions in Colorado where abortion access is lawful late into pregnancy. Here's Jess W., who's 34 and lives in Parker. She quickly told me that abortion is her top issue. So obviously abortion is like a really big one in the news right now, and that's definitely something that's important to me. I'm, you know, really pro-life and for the rights of the unborn, so that's definitely a big one today. Definitely hoping that um, we can give Governor Polis a little bit of run for his money on that one. And yeah, just hopefully flip that around a little bit. Republicans, though, aren't monolithic on this. Voters are very nuanced. And some told me they support abortion access in cases like rape and incest. And then there's Beth Trollinger. She's a Republican I spoke with in Lakewood. With the Roe v. Wade being reversed, you know, it, it seems almost like the fundamentalist party of the Republicans is behind the times. It's a hard thing to turn back the clock and learn how to handle our sexuality a lot different. Again, she's a registered Republican. Roe v. Wade was also a huge motivator for Democrats who voted in person yesterday. As you've acknowledged this hour, there weren't many contested races on the Democratic side. So we might have imagined reasonably that Democrats wouldn't vote as much. But several people told me and other CPR reporters that they felt compelled to express themselves at the ballot box, in part because of their distress over the Supreme Court decision. I just wanted to be here to Put out my vote because it's really especially important this year with uh, the Roe v. Wade overturning. The reproductive stuff is for a woman to decide on their own or the family members. I just wanted to get my vote in to make sure that, you know, my voice would be represented, especially as a woman. I hope that it will show support to, you know, the people that align a little more with um, my views and definitely help encourage others to vote as well. You heard there John Popham and Fruta, Keto Clark and Lorian Quesada are both in Aurora. Another voter I talked to, Haley Marquez in Lakewood, acknowledged that one vote in a primary wouldn't determine the issue of abortion. But she wanted to come out to create even a little bit of momentum to, in her words, elect people to benefit women's safety. 
And, you know, obviously it's too soon to say whether abortion will continue to motivate people all the way to the fall election or whether there'll be some new top priority by then. Mm. It seems to change all the time right now. That is the news cycle these days. <laughs> and I can't stress enough that, quote, traditional issues continue to be these lenses through which so many voters will evaluate candidates. Do they want lower taxes or more government services? Do they want local control or are they comfortable with state level action? As much as we want to talk about whatever the most pressing issues are for voters today, conversations with people casting ballots across the state make it clear that those basics about the role of government are fundamental to how so many Coloradans will vote in November. That is CPR producer and editor Rachel Estabrook. Back in a moment with more on how the state's congressional races are taking shape. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver's first drinking fountains were not connected to plumbing. In the early 20th century, they operated from individual storage reservoirs filled regularly from horse-drawn tanks. Better to drink water from a fountain than a polluted creek. But there was a problem. Water running off people's lips and out their mouths as they drank ran right back into the storage tank to be slurped up by the next thirsty user. That all changed in the 1940s under Dr. Florence Rena Sabin. When she was in her 70s, Dr. Sabin traveled across the state on her own dime to get support for health care reforms that ultimately cut Denver's tuberculosis rate by half. Dr. Sabin's efforts led to cleaner streets, fewer rats, better milk, and fresh, clean water for drinking fountains and the state. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Across the state, Tuesday's primaries determined the candidates in a number of high-profile congressional races. CPR's Caitlin Kim has been following those, and she joins us from Montrose. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Ryan. The reason you're in Montrose is that's where the election night party was for State Senator Don Corum. He'd mounted a challenge against incumbent GOP Representative Lauren Boebert, uh, but that didn't end well for him. That's right. Boebert beat Corum 65 percent to 35 percent. You know, he got into the race late, didn't raise a lot of money compared to her millions, but he had hoped his message of civility and working with others on both sides of the aisle would break through. You know, I spoke with one Republican voter yesterday who's sick of all the name calling. He said that's what fourth graders do. And he sees a divide, frankly, in both parties. He just wants someone who can work together to get things done, which is why he supported Corum. But, you know, the majority of Republican primary voters in that race didn't see it that way. What did Corum say about his laws? You know, he was circumspect. He knew it was going to be a tough race. He told his supporters he went into it with a message that honesty, integrity, civility are important, but that voters have chosen and he respects their decision. He closed by saying something that his friend says to him sometimes, you know, Don Corum had a good life before he got into politics and he'll have a good life afterwards. <laughs> On the other side, what message does Bobert have about her victory? You know, Bobert's message is she's going to keep doing what she's been doing, you know, being a loud voice for the conservative wing of the party, including calling out other Republicans. You know, she tweeted out this photo of her and another conservative Republican, Mary Miller of Illinois, who also won her primary last night with moms, freedom fighters and professional rhino hunters. That's Republicans in name only. Bobert said it's not the time to go along to get along. It's time to stand up. And she said conservative Republicans like her will help the party take back the House this November. And, you know, her supporters like her, you know, in your face, no compromise attitude. One voter I spoke with said she's a loud voice. And frankly, that's what the Western Slope needs. And he's fine with that. 
Boebert also took Democrats to task for trying to influence the outcome of the election. You know, there was this grassroots movement to have Democrats unaffiliate to vote in the Republican primary. And she said she hopes it sends a message to any rhinos in the future that try this, that it's not going to work. And that I guess the suggestion is she'd hunt them. Um, Do we know who she'll face in November, the Democrat? Um, The Democratic race still hasn't been called, but former Aspen City Council member Adam Frisch still holds a slight lead over community activist Sol Sandoval from Pueblo. It looks like it will be Adam Frisch, a businessman who's running a centrist focused on economic issues and who can put his own money into the race. But redistricting made this an even redder seat. It has a plus nine Republican tilt. So the chances of a Democratic upset here are very, very slim. Colorado has two wide open congressional seats this fall, a District 7, which is on the west side of the Denver area into the mountains, and the new District 8, which includes Adams and Weld counties. Uh, Let's run through the nominees who will be in those races, and and we can start with the 8th, Caitlin. Right, right. The winner there was um, in the GOP primary was Barbara Kirkmeyer. She's a first-time, first-term state senator who joined the legislature after serving as a Weld County commissioner over the course of two decades. You know, during her time on the board, she was involved in that short-lived effort for Weld County to secede from Colorado and join Wyoming. Um, she's also been part of this most recent, more recent declaration that the county would not honor new state gun laws and become a Second Amendment sanctuary. She defeated three other Republicans, including a current Weld County commissioner. She'll be up against uh, Yadira Caraveo, a pediatrician and state representative who was the only Democrat in the race. This is a very closely divided district politically. It's considered a toss-up with a 1% advantage um, for Democrats, so it's likely to attract a lot of attention and outside money. You know, Republicans see it as their best chance to get another seat. It is also Colorado's most Latino congressional district. Uh, That's the matchup in the 8th. What about the 7th? Veteran and former energy executive Eric Adlin defeated businessman Tim Reichert and Laurel Eimer to get the Republican nomination there. You know, he had the backing of most of the Republican political establishment. He describes himself as a conservative Republican, but one willing to listen to everyone in this Democratic-leaning district. Odlin will go up against Democrat Brittany Pedersen. She's served in the State House since 2013, where she's focused on issues like education, behavioral health, and the opioid crisis. You know, she didn't have a primary, so she goes into the race with a lot more campaign cash on hand, about $650,000, compared to Odlin's 38000 um, you know, this district leans Democratic by about seven points, but mm. Republicans hope it is flippable this fall if the conditions are right. The seventh district leaning about seven percent. Uh, Lynn, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. From CPR's public affairs team, that is Caitlin Kim in Matras. She'll soon fly back to Washington, D.C., where she's our capital correspondent. And before we fly off, a thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. It's on to the general. You're with CPR News and KRCC.